You are tuned to the Nahum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nahumsiegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of JM Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Matis Weingast, and uh, I am here with you today on the Nachum Siegel Network. We uh, we will be here until 9 o'clock this morning. And uh, today is the 22nd of April, the seventh day in the month of uh, E.R., Seventh day in the month of ER, and uh, the uh, 22nd day in the counting of Sphira. If you forgot to count last night, please do so sometime today. I'm glad you could join us. It's uh, 42 degrees outside of our area here, outside of our studio. 66 degrees is the expected high going down to 45 degrees tonight, and it's clear. It's expected all day long. It's sunny right now. In Jerusalem, it's uh, 63 degrees, and um, and some showers. 47 degrees is the expected low for tonight, and clear. Hope you all had a great week. Thanks for joining us. Hope you all had a great Shabbos. Uh, we are here with you, and we're going to be playing Sphere Format music today. At around 8.15, I'll be joined by Les Seidel. He's uh, the CEO of the Seidel Artesian Baking Institute in Israel. And one of the many things he does is uh, he runs workshops on the Lechem HaPanim, all about it. And uh, he's in the process of writing a sefer. We'll find out all about what he does in trying to recreate the Lechem HaPanim. should be quite fascinating. And uh, we look forward to his joining us today. And uh, we'll get to that. So right now we're going to go to the music and hear a few selections. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Appreciate it. Great you could be here with us on the Nachum Siegel Network. Dos <laughs> 
Zion,
Just about uh, 7.31 in the morning here on JM Sunday, bottom of the first half hour. Thanks for joining us. We heard uh, a number of selections from uh, in, in a sphere of format that we're in. Nachum Stark, Mindy Werdiger, called Zimra. We'll hear more coming up after morning chizuk. It's, um, it is the 22nd of April today, 22nd day in the counting of the Omer. If you forgot to count, please do so sometime today. Uh, it's the um, 7th of ER. And in Zavachim, uh, Dafyomi Dafates 9, just started a week or so ago, so it's plenty of time to catch up, join up, and continue. Uh, <clears throat> it is 42 degrees outside right now, heading up to a high of 66 degrees, and uh, going back down to 45 tonight, clear all day long. In Jerusalem, it's 63 degrees, and some showers, going down to a low of 47 degrees uh, this evening. I uh, just wanted to remind you that uh, coming up at about 8.15, we're going to have a very interesting guest this morning, Les Seidel, from the uh, Seidel Artisan, uh, Artesian Baking Institute of Israel. And we'll find out about the lechem upon him, the bread that was baked for the base of Migdash. And it's not actually bread. Uh, so we'll talk about that and uh, find out about this most interesting topic. He is uh, working to uh, to perfect... Let's go to uh, to morning chizuk at this time each and every Sunday through Thursday. We present to you Rabbi David Goldwasser, Rabbi Goldwasser's words, L'zecha Nishmas, Rav Zev, Rabbi Yosef Halevi, and Esther Bas, Rabbi Yosef Halevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning chizuk. Good morning. It says in Dvarim, Aror ha'ish asher yasa pesa Cursed is the man who will make a graven image, an abomination of Hashem. Why is it that the klala is said specifically about a person that makes an idol besaser in secret, within the confines of his own home? A person who does an avera b'farhesia, a public sin, is doing something that's much worse. Rabbi Nisim Yagain tells us it comes to teach us something very deep. There are sins, Averis, that if a person would know that someone will see him doing it, he would refrain from doing it. For instance, stealing. He would be miskaber. He would hold himself back and not do the sin. If there was the slightest chashash, if there was a suspicion that he might be seen. There are Averis, 
sins that are less severe that a person would not refrain from even if his friend was watching. Like, for instance, Lashon Hara. He might consider that a little bit less in the severity level. However, if a tzaddik or a godol would see him, he certainly wouldn't do it. The third category is an Avera sin that the person wouldn't do even if only a dog would see him. If a person still has human sensitivity, it would stop him. Oror ha'ish asher pesel. Why is it that the person is cursed who does this in secret? Because if a person does these disgusting things in private, it shows that he has no emuna, no faith. It appears to him that as though not even one person is watching, we know that melochol ha'aretz kevodo, that Hashem fills the entire world. How is it possible that he could think that Hashem doesn't see it? What's worse, physical or emotional pain, embarrassment? People would accept a lot of pain, physical, not to be embarrassed. If someone would give a person a million dollars to do something embarrassing, he still might not do it. The bush is too great. People are willing to do a lot in order not to be embarrassed. We should also do that much, not to be embarrassed in front of Hashem. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
Yeah. 
Na 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 na
Schon 2000 Jahre gewahrt, Gules mitgemacht. Wie lang kennen wir du so sauten? Oi, wie lang missgedauern die Nacht? Bring es nun, wie ich in Geschwind. Du siehst Peisach Nacht in Zeret Vielah. Du siehst, wo es mir beten Sei machen in sich an den Zischbad. Verkäuft sind dich und die Leo Nacht kenn ich endlich nahier Gott. Hoi, Baschefel, die Westen sei beweisen. Die Herrschtiber als Kreuz in Klein. Die Westzeit zeigen, bin ich bechäuris wieder. Kielech hua join af haleilu Schwein 
Coming up uh, top of the hour, 8 o'clock in the morning Eastern Time here on JM Sunday. Listening to a little Mendy Werdiger in the background as we finish up this hour. We've been playing Safira format music all morning long. We're going to get to the news from Israel in uh, just uh, a few seconds. And uh, following the news from Israel, we'll be joined by uh, Les Seidel, CEO of the Seidel Artisan Baking Institute in Israel. And I look forward to a very, very informative discussion with him, especially on the topic of Lechem Aponim, the bread that was in the uh, Mishkan and the Beis Hamikdash. And we'll find out what he is, uh, what what his involvement is with that, and uh, and we'll we'll talk about the workshops that he runs. So I'm looking forward to that uh, in uh, in just a short. Uh, in just a short while, it is the twenty second of April, seventh of ER. Sphira, it's twenty second of uh, day in the counting of the Sphira. If you forgot to count, please do so sometime today. Uh, and in the Daf Yomi, it's uh, it's Zavachim Daf Tes, the ninth Daf. So it's uh, early on in Zavachim, and you can uh, pick it up and join everyone. Just like you're joining us here, and uh, it's time for our news from Israel. Hannah Julian, Middle East news analyst and senior correspondent at JewishPress.com, joins us every Sunday morning to bring us up to date on the latest happenings in the state of Israel. Good morning, Hannah Julian. Good morning, Matis. The Hamas terrorist organization is blaming Israel's Mossad intelligence agency for uh, yes for yesterday's assassination of Dr. Fadi Albash. He was an electrical engineer, but he was also an expert on attack drones and rocket systems. And he recently published material on drone development. Albash was from the Gaza town of Jabalia. He was married with three children, and he was the cousin of a senior member of the Gaza-based Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorist organization. But Albash did not stay in Gaza. He spent the past 10 years in Malaysia, which has been described by a number of sources as a haven for jihadists. He was honored as a senior commander by the Hamas military wing at a morning tent in Gaza. And that's because uh, yesterday morning he was shot to death as he came out of a mosque uh, at around dawn. Four bullets killed him. Uh, He was hit in the head and in the body by two people who shot him as they came around the corner on a motorcycle. His family is now trying to get his body back for burial, but they may have some problems with that, and that's because the family of IDF soldier Hadar Golden, uh, uh, who was a soldier, his body and that of IDF soldier Oron Shoal, uh, their bodies have both been held in Gaza by Hamas for nearly four years. The Golden family has demanded that Israel block Hamas from being able to bury al-Bash in Gaza until their own son's remains are returned to Israel for a proper burial. That call was backed up by Education Minister of Naftali Bennett, 
who heads the Bayit Yehudi party. Bennett says the body of the terrorist should not be allowed to be returned to Gaza for burial until the bodies of the two soldiers are released for burial in Israel. Hamas is accusing Mossad of carrying out the assassination. Israel is not saying anything, as usual. So uh, it's not clear who killed this man. Hamas is completely convinced, of course, that it's Israel, but there's no way to know for sure, (laughs) at least for the time being. Defense Minister Victor Lieberman says that a 15-year-old Gaza teen is dead because he was enticed by Hamas to join events at the border this past Friday. The teen was one of four people who were shot while trying to damage the security fence along the border between Israel and Gaza. Hamas has been using women and children in their terrorist squads during the Friday events at the borders over the past several weeks. On Friday, they were burning tires, using slingshots and catapults to throw stones and storming the fence while trying to damage it. More experienced Hamas and Islamic Jihad operatives use those activities as cover while they try to infiltrate into Israeli territory to carry out terrorist attacks. The Israeli Defense Forces have warned Gazans not to approach the fence. They've dropped flyers in Arabic, Hebrew, and English, and they've posted messages on Twitter, Facebook, and in other social media. In the case of this 15-year-old, he was ordered by his mother to stay home. But he sneaked out anyway, telling his aunt that he'd be back in an hour. And he managed to get past a roll of barbed wire with other Gazans in order to help damage the fence, which is how he was shot by an Israeli soldier who was targeting people trying to damage security infrastructure because there are Jewish communities literally only 10 minutes away from that fence that are at risk if terrorists infiltrate that fence. The incident is under investigation, but preliminary findings have confirmed that the teen, whose name is Mohammed Ayub, was involved in damaging the fence and that he ignored his mother's warnings to stay home. On the good news front, Israel's Yom Ha'atzma'ut was really rocking this past week. One of the most interesting people who lit a torch for the opening ceremony was Margalit Zinadi, the last member of the Jewish Zinadi family of Pekin in the Galilee. They've been there in the village of Pekin for 2,000 years without a break. There has been a Jewish presence in the Galilee village of Pekin since the Second Temple times. She's been the caretaker of the ancient synagogue of Pekin, which features a limestone column engraved with Hebrew inscriptions dating back to the Second Temple period, back to the Romans. Marguerite never married. She's in her 80s. But she never married because it meant she would have to leave her home and no one would, would, no one would be left there in Pekin. The Independence Day celebrations continued into Friday. The 70th anniversary is actually going to continue all year. Uh, but on Friday, they were really partying <laughs> in Tel Aviv. There was an incredible broadcast from the heart of Tel Aviv. They had Rikudayam for hours in the afternoon. And just before the Shabbat, there was a two-hour broadcast 
Culture Minister Miri Regev came. There were thousands thousands in the streets and a broadcast with Rikudeyam, uh, traditional music and dancing in the streets. Uh, you can find this broadcast, by the way, on YouTube. They recorded it. And so if you look on YouTube, you can find a Hebrew broadcast uh, on YouTube. Matis, I will send you the link to this. So you may you may want to you may want to actually post this link. It is really unbelievable. Traditional, old-fashioned Israeli rikude am. It was an unbelievable thing, and uh, and they're probably going to do more of this. I would I would suspect throughout the seventieth year because it's a really unbelievable thing. They had Yemenite music. They had. Uh, they had like, you know, from 1948 to 1950s, 1960s, Rikudayam, all the stuff that, that everybody can remember when you go to Israeli folk dancing, they had all of it. Wow. And I mean, just picture thousands of people doing Israeli folk dancing in the streets. That's what it was. And you could see it on YouTube. It was a live feed. That's what was going on. It must on have been Friday. amazing to uh, to have experienced that in Israel. Fortunate that you uh, were in are in Israel for the seventieth. That must be an amazing feeling for you, also. It's an incredible thing. It it really, really is. But you know what? You can share it. You can share it in New York because they have live feeds on YouTube. They yeah, do. Look they had, to that. Yeah, they were live feeds. So it's it's an, a special thing. L- watch out for it because they do have it. And actually, once I send you the link, you can sign up for live feed. They'll give you an alarm. So it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, let me tell you a quick thing about the weather just so that you'll know what's going on over here. I don't know what your weather's like today, but uh, we it's actually be had in a sun. the 60s. Oh, okay. So we, I guess we're about the same. Uh, at the Dead Sea, it's in the 80s, but uh, in Beersheba, it only hit 70. And in Tel Aviv, it was about the same. But we actually had a thunderstorm today. Yeah, I heard about we, that. I heard there was showers. <laughs> yeah, we had, a, we had a thunderstorm for about 15 minutes. <laughs> and then the sun came out. <laughs> well, I got a little water into the... Uh... Yeah, no, it's it's always a bracha. It's always a bracha. If we if we have any kind of rain, it is always a special, a special blessing. Partly cloudy today, isolated showers, uh, a little drop in temperatures. It's brisk. It's really brisk. It's in the seventies. It's uh, slightly slightly lower tonight. It'll be in the fifties. Clear to partly cloudy skies tomorrow. Fair, a slight rise in the temperatures, and on Tuesday, clear to partly cloudy as well. Uh, I want to wish everyone a Shavua Tov, a Gedvach. Everyone have a great, great week uh, in our new 70th year. Uh, we're looking forward to next month having a brand new uh, temporary, albeit, but still a brand new American embassy uh, in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, that is <laughs> something that is... Uh, very exciting and being talked about, and uh, oh, we're look waiting. To that. We are waiting. <laughs> Beautiful. Have a great week, everyone. Hannah Julian for Jam Sunday. Thank you so much, Hannah Julian. That's our news from Israel. We'll see you next week right here on Jam Sunday, exclusively on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, it's time to get back to uh, the music. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by uh, Les Seidel. 
uh, of the uh, Seidel Artesian Baking Institute in Israel. And we'll talk about uh, what he's doing with a special workshop on Lecha Mishnah. So that's uh, something to look forward to. And uh, that'll be in just a few minutes. Here's Kalachai on JM Sunday. <laughs> that was There is Now. Kalachai on JM Sunday. <laughs>
Kolachai here on JM Sunday. I guess I was in the uh, post Shabbos mode when I said Lecha Mishnah. I apologize about that before. Uh, but uh, joining me on the air now is our special guest this morning, Les Seidel of the. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I, I can't believe I, I made that mistake. But the Seidel Artesian Baking Institute in Israel. Good morning, Mr. Seidel. Good morning, Matas. How are you? Good, thank you so much. Or actually, I should say good afternoon to you in Israel. Right. Uh, first, That's I wanted right. to uh, three in the uh, exactly. First, I wanted to wish you a Mazal uh, Tov and uh, post a Chag Sameach on the uh, on Yom Atzmut, seventy years of uh, of Israel. I'm sure it was extremely exciting being there in person. It really was. It was a special year for. For Israel, the, the whole Avira was completely different. The, the celebrations with, it, with an extra twist with, with the 70 years was really spectacular this year, much more than normal. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. So uh, we're going to be talking about Lechem HaPanim, not Lechem Mishnah. We'll talk, we can talk <coughs> about that another time. Uh, but uh, first, uh, you have a, uh, an Artesian Baking Institute, and I know the, the term Artesian is very popular uh, in the food world nowadays. What is Artesian Baking? Okay, so it's actually an artisan bakery. Artisan bakery. Um, the, the, the word artisan things the old-fashioned way by hand. You have artisan metal workers, artisan carpenters, and artisan bread makers. It's the same kind of concept of baking bread the old-fashioned way using hand techniques rather than using high-tech uh, machinery to make your bread. And one would think that that would mean uh, that perhaps you have a more uh, authentic way of doing things, more traditional. Would that be a fair uh, a fair thought? So actually, the way artisan bakers bake bread is the way we bake bread since time immemorial, for thousands of years. Only in the last hundred years that we've forgotten how to bake bread. Until then, we were baking bread the right way. And that was the artisan way, baking it by hand using basic ingredients without all the chemicals and the preservatives and the additives, etc., and the artisan baking method is the way they used to bake bread from 200 years ago back. Yeah, it's uh, obvious when, when somebody uh, gets a loaf of bread from a bakery, uh, even if it's not an artisan necessarily bakery, but, but a, a homemade, you know, you, you, you go there, you get a loaf of bread, it, it tastes so much different than when you get the store-bought stuff, and you take a look at the ingredients, there are 20 or 30 ingredients, and, and you figure they have to... They have to uh, uh, affect the taste and the texture uh, as opposed to real bread when you get it. It's so delicious. It's such a difference. That's right. To, to read a label today for a loaf of bread, you need a degree in chemistry <laughs> exactly. to, to understand what it's talking about. Um, basic bread is only four ingredients. It's flour, water, salt, and yeast, either regular yeast or old-fashioned sourdough yeast. That is the only ingredients you need for bread. Anything beyond that is... Uh, superfluous and completely unnecessary. Right, but there obviously is a way of making it so it tastes more, you know, certainly tastes more delicious. Some recipes are better than others, so to speak. That, that's where the art comes into the artisan. Basically. Right. <laughs> and uh, you run um, the uh, the workshops and uh, the programs for people to uh, to go to. We'll get to the Lechem Apanim in a moment, but in general, are people able to uh, visit your facility? Or do you have classes for people who want to learn how to bake and things like that? So, so the artisan, Seidel Artisan Baking Institute, which is located in Karnesh Omron, uh, is 
uh, institute which specializes in Jewish breads. And unlike regular bakeries which sell French baguettes and Italian pizzas and things like that, right. we specifically concentrate on breads with a Jewish history, specifically challahs, uh, bagels, bialis, uh, Jewish, Jewish rye bread, all the breads that have a, a Jewish uh, origin to them. And that is our speciality. We, we bake them the authentic way, the way they were baked originally. We do, we've done a lot of research. We teach people how to bake them. We sell them as products as well in our bakery. Mm-hmm. I'm actually writing a book about the history of Jewish bread, which we describe the amazingly interesting history about how these breads evolved and how they came to be. Uh, is really an interesting subject. Uh, aside from what we know about uh, Lechem Aponim, uh and the families that were during uh, there during the time of the Beit Hamikdash, uh, have there been uh, Jewish uh, families uh, with traditional bread baking um, expertise throughout the world over the centuries? Uh, most certainly. Um, the, for example, the the world-famous bagel, for example. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it's my hypothesis that the actual origin of the bagel, uh, unlike most of the historians which say that it began somewhere around the 9th, 10th century CE, where in uh, Western Europe there were, was a lot of persecutions by the Christian community against the Jews, and they would not allow them to bake any breads which resembled Christian breads. And the bakers had to come up with some kind of innovation to bake the breads, which were completely different to the Christian bread. So they decided to boil them before they baked them. And that's the, uh, the theory of how the bagel was born, why it's, why it's boiled before it is baked. But it's my theory that the actual origin, how they came up with that idea in the first place, is because they, baked it on, they based it on a bread that was baked in the Beit HaMikdash called the Lechemur Bechet, which is a very interesting one of the Menachot. It's one of the uh, breads which is first boiled, then baked, and then fried in oil. So the bakers in the 9th, 10th century probably looked for some source or for, for some inspiration to make this bread in a Jewish way, in a different way, and I'm sure that must have been a consideration for them. I'm, I'm almost sure it came from there. Very interesting. And, you know, throughout our history and throughout the uh, Jewish law and custom, uh, bread and wine are, are items that are that have a special holiness. They have different brachot and things like that. So it kind of, it's very interesting when you tie that into what happened in history, that Jews were not allowed to bake the same type of breads as, as non-Jews. I mean, just thinking about that, why would that even be an issue? I mean, did they say the same thing for for, I don't know, anything else they they made. But taking the bread as, as being something holy, it, it kind of makes sense that we've always had it as a special holy object in some form or another. Right. Even going back to Mitzrayim, with Yosef in Mitzrayim, we read in the Meforshim how it tells us that the Jews would not eat the bread with the Egyptians, and vice versa. They each considered mutually that it was a to'eva for the one for the other to eat the other's bread. Right. So we've always distinct. It's not one of the four things that distinguished Am Israel from the the Mitzrayim. They didn't name their their children. They named them with Jewish names, and they kept the uh, other four issues. But one of them is not bread. Bread is not mentioned specifically. But they did differentiate certainly with their bread eating rituals from the Egyptians. That's already started back then. Right. Uh, Les Seidel, uh, CEO of the Seidel Artisan Baking Institute in Israel, uh, thank you for all that information. Let's now focus on one of the workshops that you give and one of the uh, 
one of the, the, the things that you're, you've become an expert in, and that is the lechem haponim, which uh, generally we know that it's the bread that was, uh, that was in the time of the, uh, the, the Mishkan, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, uh, was, was a bread that was placed in, in the um, outer area and stayed, you know, we all learned it was stayed for a week, it never spoiled. Uh, but, but first thing, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the lechem haponim from our traditional sources, but one thing is, am I correct, it is a mistake to call it a bread in the sense that we think of bread. It is, it is more of a matzah. Is that, is exactly. that correct? It's a matzah. So please correct. tell us a little bit about the history of lechem haponim. Okay, so I think of all the Jewish breads, the lechem apanim is the only real bread which is totally authentic from beginning to end, authentically Jewish. Even if we take matzah, for example, which started long before the lechem apanim in Egypt, the matzah was baked maybe even by cavemen before <laughs> uh, Abraham Avinu came along and he told Sarah to make shlosseim kemasolet for the three angels which came to visit him. So I don't even know if the Jews can claim that the matzah is an authentically original Jewish bread, hmm. because I think even before they were baking it in the form of a kind of a hard, flat cracker bread, which maybe, I don't know if we can claim credit for, but one bread which we certainly can claim credit for, which is undeniably Jewish and has, has an absolutely no parallel, parallel whatever with any other non-Jewish bread, is the lechem apanim. Now, I started my interest in the Lechem Apanim during the research that I've been doing for my book. Um, there's a professor in the University of Barilan. His name is Professor Zohar Amar. And he's written an, a, an incredible book. It's a seminal work on all the Chameshet Minei Dagan. That's the name of his book. And it deals in part with the Lechem Apanim. And that got me started on the whole subject. And since then, I've been collaborating with him. He's a historian and archaeologist par excellence. And I'm a baker, so I'm coming at it from a completely different angle to him. He's more from the historical, theoretical aspect. And I decided that I was going to try and uh, take up his research where he left off and actually bake the breads and see how we can try to duplicate them and reproduce them, reconstruct them from the time of uh, the Batei Amikdash. Mm -hmm. Because we have very, very little info to go on. We have the story of Beit Garmu, for example, in the time of the second Beit Hamikdash, where they talk about how they were experts in baking and they couldn't replace them with the Alexandrian bakers. But they give very, very little details about how the bread was baked. In fact, that was the pivot of the, the story about Beit Garmu, is that they would not divulge their secret to the Chachamim because they didn't want it to become available for their Avodah Zarah. Right. So the, the secret of baking the Lechem Apanim is mostly uh, unknown to us. We don't really know. All we know are the bare minimum of facts which is given to us in the, in the, in the Torah, for example, the dimensions, you know, was 10 twachim by 5 twachim. Um, the thickness of the bread was uh, a tefach. It depends on whether you go according to the Bavli or the Yerushalmi. In the Bavli, it says a thickness of a tefach. If you go according to the Yerushalmi, it says ad tefach, mm -hmm. which is a little bit less than a tefach. In all my experiments, I've never managed to get a matzah to rise up to the thickness of a tefach right. with all the different things that I've been trying to work with. I don't know if that's possible. So maybe the Yerushalmi in that aspect is more authentic in describing the thickness of the bread. So to, to try to reconstruct a bread with very little details poses a great challenge. So based on uh, Professor Amara's uh, initial research, we've been spending the last year or two trying to experiment with the Lechem Apanim, and we've created uh, uh, specialized baking pans when it describes the shulchan in the in Parshat uh, Truma and Tetzaveh, 
It talk, talks about the different components of the shulchan, ke'arot, kapot, menakiot, ksavot, all these different parts. Right. Whether, when it talks about the ke'arot of the shulchan, it's referring to the different baking pans which they baked the bread in, which they kneaded the bread in, they shaped the bread, they baked it in the oven. They had special pans for taking the bread out of the oven and transferring them to the shulchan with all of these which were made from gold, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the halacha lamaseh, masechet menachot. So we try to <clears throat> reconstruct the, the, the shape of the bread based on the Gemara again in Menachot. There's a big uh, machloket between, very interesting machloket between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Chanina on Daftzadi Daled Amud Bet in Masechet Menachot on the shape of the Lechem HaPanim. Uh, Rabbi Chanina said it's shaped like a Teva Prutza, which is like a rectangular shape. Right. And Rabbi Yochanan says it's a Sfina Rokedet, which is a dancing ship now. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to understand what Rabbi Yochanan is talking about. There's different gear sort. It depends on the, the, the Gemara that you look at, the Vil Nashas uh, interpretation of Rabbi, Hanin, uh, Rabbi Yochanan Sfinaro Keret is a V-shaped. If you look at a more ancient manuscript of Rashi, uh, Rashi's Perush, from, I found one from the 1500s here in the Israel uh, Library, which is thought to be the most uh, ancient existing uh, manuscript of Rashi. It is not a V-shaped. It's more like the shape of a ship looked at from the side. Well, so, if I could interrupt you for a second. If, if uh, one looks on... Uh, the different mafarshim and whatnot can see in the Gemara's uh, the the designs, like you said, the drawings, and maybe I'm being too simplistic. But when you when you talk about the the narrow uh, hull, let's say the ship, uh, I mean, to my mind, we're we're looking at a shape that looks like a pita, an open sided pita bread or a, a taco shell. Not obviously not a shell. So uh, these, I know there are different opinions on them, but um, these do seem to be shapes that that we are still familiar with. Um, that's not 100% accurate, Matthew. Oh, because, it's not. Um, oh, no. Okay. That, that is actually the, the <laughs> definition of the word lechem apanim. Why, one of the perushim said, why is it called lechem apanim? Right. Because it has many faces. It has many sides to it. Yeah. It's not a regular circular-shaped pita bread. It has many angles, and it's folded in various ways to give it many sides or many faces. That's one of the perushim why it's called lechem apanim in the first place. So were these uh, uh, designs, if you will, of the uh, or shapes totally unique to the bread from the Beit HaMikdash? They, they were not in common use, as it were? 100%. Uh-huh, okay. the, 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 shul, the Shulchan, if you look at the dimensions of the Shulchan, they do not correlate with the, the dimensions of the bread. The bread is 10, um, uh, ten tfachim long mm-hmm. by 5 tfachim wide, and the width of the Shulchan is only 5 tfachim, which is much too narrow. So if you want to put the bread on the table in two stacks of six, like they were stacked on the table, the, of the 12 breads, you have to find some way of folding them in certain ways that the entire bread is on the shulchan. It has to be ala shulchan, ala dechem panim, ala shulchan. It's not allowed to overlap on any of the sides. So you have to find some way of folding it that it's in the airspace of the shulchan and it doesn't exceed the airspace of the shulchan. Right. And that requires special pans to shape the breads. And we had to have those made specially. We went to a metal works factory. We gave them the, the schematics to duplicate Rabbi Chanina's Teva Prutza form and what we understand to be the Sfina Rokedet form. And we've been using those pans to bake the bread in our bakery, experimenting with different... Uh, it, it, it's very interesting. The recipe for the Lechem Apanim doesn't exist anywhere. The only thing it tells you is how much flour or how much solet is in the Lechem Apanim. Mm-hmm. It tells you the, 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 the square meterage of it, but it doesn't tell you the shape 
or the ingredients. So we have to try experiment and try duplicate it. And as you said, the lechem apanim is a matzah. It's not a regular bread using seor or machmetzet or yeast. Right. So in order for a bread, which is a matzah, to rise up to the height of a tefach, you have to have some kind of rising agent which is not considered chometz. And from uh, Professor Amar's research, he, he has the theory that the, the, the compound that they used was some kind, some kind of sodium rising agent, very similar to baking soda that we use today. Mm. It was used a lot in ancient times for baking and for many other purposes. And it's his theory that this rising agent was used in the lechem apanim to enable it to rise up to be a voluminous bread without becoming a, a, a chometz bread. That is is fascinating. Um, archaeologically speaking, has anything ever been found? Because you said you use now metal uh, forms to bake the bread, uh, and I know obviously we don't have anything from the Beit Hamikdash per se. But has anything ever been found um, that that might indicate that it was used for the baking of the breads? Um, what we do find archaeological findings is in the shape of the bread. That's quite interesting. Uh, the king, uh, the last of the Hashmonaim kings, Matitya Antigonus. He was the king just before Herod, before Hurdus. Mm. Just before he finished his reign as king, he minted a number of coins. They're called the coins of Matitya Antigonus. And on the one side of the coin, he, he depicts the, the shape of the menorah. And on the flip side is the shape of the Lechem Apanim, on the Shulchan Lechem Apanim. And that gives us a little bit of an archaeological insight, maybe to the shape of the bread, which, it, it, as it turns out, it looks more like a U-shaped which is very more, much more similar to the hull of a ship, which is not exactly a V-shaped, as uh, the Vilna Shas portrays it. But that doesn't tell us anything about the ingredients that were used. The, the Torah only tells us how many esron of solet were, two esronim of solet per loaf of bread, which works out to about three and a half kilos of solet, semolina flour, per loaf. And if you add to that water and other ingredients such as salt, and maybe the rising agent, you get a loaf which weighs about five and a half kilos, which is about 10 or something pounds, which is a huge, enormous, wow. heavy loaf. And yeah. there were 12 of these. That's, that, that, that's a lot. How, how long would it take to, uh, well, you have the workshops and it do similar things. How long does it take to bake them? So it doesn't take very long because of the matzah. Right. So matzahs are baked at an enormously high temperature for a much shorter time than regular bread. So the temperature of the oven is way over 500 Fahrenheit. It's really piping, piping hot. It's almost the same temperature as you would bake matzahs in. And the, the bread bakes for about 10 minutes. Remember, it's a matzah. You have the same time constraints in baking the lechem apanim right. as with any other matzah. It has to be mixed and shaped and baked within a time limit of 18 minutes, which is not a long time at all. Would you, uh, would you say that, the, uh, that the, the recipe that you have for making this bread uh, would... Um I always say this, would would suffice. Would would you eat this bread on Pesach? Um, if it was baked in a hermetically Pesachtika bakery, yes, for sure. Well, unfortunately, our bakery is not Pesachtik. Right. It's the only week we have a vacation during the year. We <laughs> close up the bakery, sell all the chometz, and take a week's vacation. But but theoretically, if you did bake it in a, in a Pesachtika bakery, one hundred percent would be considered uh, as a matzah. There is some matzah that is on the market every year before Pesach that uh, I guess is a more of a Sephardi origin. That is um, uh, more like a uh, like a pita, like like a pita exactly. And uh, uh, I, I've had it before, um, and it's 
it's quite good. <laughs> and it's definitely not like the matzah that we're used to. That's for sure. That's for sure. It's, it's a Yemenite custom, a Taimani custom, mm-hmm. to bake the, the, the matzahs not as hard as the Ashkenazi brittle cracker-like matzahs right. and not as thin. They're much thicker. And another, another interesting feature about the, the Sephardi Taimani matzahs is that they have salt in them, unlike the Ashkenazi matzahs, which do not have salt. So huh. they uh, are quite an eye-opener. The first time the Ashkenazi rabbis actually discovered these Taimani matzahs is when they went to uh, Yemen on a fundraising uh, campaign, and they encountered these uh, Taimani matzahs, and it's the first time they've ever seen them. And they didn't know how to deal with them, quite exactly how to deal with them, because it was completely different to anything they've ever experienced before. But uh, the Yemenite custom of baking matzahs is that in Yemen they used to bake them throughout the week of Pesach because oh. they never had refrigerators, they right. never had freezers. So the bread life, life, shelf life of the bread was about two hours, and then the bread was un- inedible. Mm. So you had to bake it just prior to being used. And when they came on Aliyah, when they had uh, the mass Aliyah to Israel from Yemen, the Ashkenazi rabbis uh, accepted their minhag, but they got them to bake it in a different way. They had to bake all the Yemenite matzahs before Pesach, the, right. the day or two before Pesach, and then they froze them, and peep, the, the Yemenites now don't bake during Pesach. They take them out of the freezer, and they just warm them up during Pesach. Yeah, they bake prior to Pesach. So those were the instructions to do, exactly. Uh, talking about the Lecham HaPanim again, exactly now, uh, we know that one of the things is that the the, the bread was put out, uh, the Lechem Panim was put out one week and it lasted another week. It didn't become moldy or anything like that. Uh, what is in uh, this bread, though, that uh, would be uh, would become moldy? It's not made in the same way. I mean, we have, okay, matzah obviously <laughs> rarely becomes moldy. You can keep it for years. Um, but what's different about the bread? What What ingredients doesn't allow for... Um, the, the mold to take care of spoilage, um, uh, because you know we believe it was a true miracle from one week to the next. Right. So if, if you if you consider that fact that it remained fresh and not moldy a whole week as a miracle as a nest, then you can't really try duplicate that nest because I mean, right? Katonti to try uh, make the the uh, try duplicate what Hashem does. Of course, but. Uh, if you try to find some kind of scientific uh, explanation for it, why it would or what would not go moldy, uh, the reason for that is because the, the lechem hapanim, just like the temani matzah, has a higher ratio of water to flour in the dough, which makes it softer and uh, more moist. And wherever there's more moisture, the chances of going moldy are higher. Any bread that has a higher water content goes moldy much quicker than a bread which has zero or very low water content. That's why the Ashkenazi matzahs can last for months, even years. Some people forget to throw them out, and they're still not moldy because they have almost zero water in them. And the the mold and the fungus cannot live in a zero-moisture environment. Mm. Whereas if the bread has a higher water content, as did the lechem apanim, it goes moldy very quickly because the the mold uh, feeds, uh, feeds very well in a high-moisture environment. So the, the trick is to try find some way of retarding the, the staling and the moldy process. And the one thing that they did was they used a special strain of wheat to make the lechem apanim. Mm. The, the wheat that we use today is not the same wheat that they used in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. Today, to make bread, we use a wheat called soft wheat. Okay. In the time of the Beit HaMikdash, they used a wheat strain called hard wheat or durum wheat. 
durum wheat is very uh, popular today to make pasta from. Right, right, exactly. Very I was well going to say, yeah. Now the now the thing about durum wheat is it extends the shelf life of the bread. If you make the same bread with the same recipe using soft wheat or durum wheat, the durum wheat bread has an extended shelf life of two to three days beyond the soft soft wheat strain. Okay. So just by changing the strain of wheat, you can extend the shelf life and prevent mold. But obviously there was some element of uh, ness in the thing. Not only did it remain fresh the whole week, according to the Mepharshim, it also remained warm as if it had just come out of the oven, right. which is something that I've never managed to duplicate. I managed to prevent, in our experimentation, I managed to prevent mold for the entire week, but I haven't managed to keep the bread soft and and fresh and warm as if it had just come out of the oven. That is, has, has, we haven't got there yet. Right. Now, the, the, the bread... Um was kept on, like you said, the uh, the special um, tables for it, which were made out of gold. Was there any uh, anything placed between the bread and the tables themselves, according to what so we know? The, the, whole, the whole structure of the table is a uh, 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 subject of debate in the Gomorrah, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of uh, um, uh, um, unclearness, how would I say? Um, they're not clear exactly how it looked and which part went where. Um, Basically, the consensus of opinion is that there were four uprights on both sides of the table, two, two uprights for each stack of six breads. These were called the snipim. Mm-hmm. And between the two snipim, there were a bunch of rods, or in the, in the Gemara, they call them kanim. They were like pipes, which were slit down the middle. So it's a hollow pipe slit down the middle. Right. And the breads rested on these pipes. They, they extended from one of the upright to the opposite upright, and the breads lay on top of these pipes. The first bread in the stack of six was directly on the shulchan. Mm-hmm. The next five breads were on three rods uh, each bread, and the final bread on the top, the top of the stack was on, on two rods. So that is the, the layout of the, the, the shulchan. And it, interesting, the different gears out of the shape of the lechem apanim, there's a whole machloket in the Gemara, how they would shape the kanim if the bread was curved at the bottom, how would you place these uh, pipes at the right bottom on the, to right. a bread which is not flat. So Rashi comes out with all kinds of explanations that they would have rounded rods or rounded pipes, etc. It's a very interesting subject. So this is... Uh, the reason th- oh, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. The, the reason for the rods, the reason that they had these rods or the kanim was to allow airflow between the breads that they wouldn't be placed directly one on top of the other right. and not have any aeration, then they, they, they would prevent mold. Right. That was the purpose of the cunning. That, and that makes sense. I was going to ask you if that's a, uh, something that makes sense today in terms of how to um, you know, store bread or whatnot, bake it, and that, that's absolutely the same thing. And it's interesting because gold, and I was thinking maybe it's the, what, what it's on, it keeps warmth also, but gold is not a very... Um, I don't know chemically how you say it, but it's a, it doesn't retain a lot of heat. I mean, you can melt gold pretty easily. So I would think that, uh, you know, I don't know if that would have anything to do with it. But um, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what the melting temperature of gold is, but it's much higher than the baking temperature of the lichen Right, that, sure. that, 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 of course. Uh, now, and unfortunately, we, we haven't invested in gold trays yet. One day we'll, we'll <laughs> <Do> you, <laughs> probably you, cost more than my whole bakery. Yeah, exactly. Do you ever work with the? Uh, what is it? The the um, is it the Temple Institute that uh, the organization that that tries to make uh, different, uh, you know, tries to recreate the different um, items that were in the Beit Hamikdash? Most definitely. So, Professor Amari is very 
much uh, part of the Temple Institute. They've been doing a lot of collaboration, and subsequently we've been collaborating with them as well. I'm in contact with them all the time. I'm mostly asking them shalers, and they're asking me uh, baking uh, right. questions not related to the <coughs> to the, the Torah aspect of it. Uh, but we're definitely in contact, and we're definitely working together, yeah. Uh, Les Seidel is my guest this morning, Seidel Artisan Baking Institute in Israel. Uh, the subject is fascinating, talking about the Lechem Aponim, uh, because... You know, we hear about it, we've learned about it, but to really think about what goes into it. Uh, would we be allowed to eat uh, lechem hapanim made in the same way? Uh, I, I guess I'm asking from a halachic standpoint or something like that. Is there any, could you could you make a, you know, would, would you believe to be the right shape and, and make a lechem mishneh over it on a Shabbat? Okay, so the, the, the question is if you're allowed to duplicate the structures or the, Breads or the kalim used in the in the mikdash. Well, in particular, uh, this there, way is the bread it's, itself. Okay, so there's an issue of making a facsimile of any of the kalim for the purpose of using them for avodah. Right. But if you're doing it for the purpose of limud, then you're allowed to do so. Okay. And that is the, the that is the psak that we got. If you want to get, teach people how to make the lechem apanim, it's not for the purpose of saying this is what the lechem apanim was. It's for the purpose of learning that bezrat Hashem one day. When, the, uh, when we build the third Beit HaMikdash, or when the third Beit HaMikdash comes down from heaven, then we will already be uh, well-versed in the methods, and it won't take us long to get back into, into the job. Right. So, so in our workshops, we bake all these breads. We bake uh, not only the Lechem HaPanim, we bake the different kinds of Menachot. We bake the Shteha Lechem. We do the Korban Todah with the different kinds of matzahs used in the Korban Todah. Um, it's an incredibly interesting workshop. The, the thing that got me interested in the workshop in the first place is because I found that a lot of people had absolutely no clue about what Avodat Beit HaMikdash was. You go to shul on Shabbos and in the morning you daven korba, korbanos. On Shabbos you say the Tulat Musaf and you say Shnei Esronim Solet Min Bashem and Zanisko. But how many people really understand what they're saying? Exactly. <laughs> I went, <laughs> what, what is an Isaron and what is Balul Bashemen? Until you actually do it with your hands and you see it in front of your face and taste it and smell it and make it yourself, you don't really get a full understanding. And that, that was the modus operandi behind this workshop. We wanted to give a, a feeling for what Avodat Beit Hamikdash was. Right, and, and it's, it's much much easier to do it making bread than it is to start slaughtering cows yeah, and sheep and rams. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is very, very true. Uh, a question I want to ask before I, I forget. The it, it, in the Torah it talks about the fact that on the shulchan also was um, was some spice or, or incense, frank, frankincense we call it, which is a from a, from tree, right? right. What uh, what was this? Is there a significance that you've found in relation to the bread itself from having that there? Um, you mean what does it contribute to the bread? I, I guess it I mean some contribution. We know that it's supposed to be there. Um, do Do you have any insight as to why it's there, other than it has to be there? Um, no, I don't. Yeah. Um, we We know that there's different shitot of where exactly it was placed on the shulchan, according right. to some gear. So, it was placed on top of the bread, the top the top bread in the stack. One baziach of levona was on the one stack, and the other one is on the other stack. And according to the second shita, there was a space between the two stacks on the shulchan itself where the two bazichim were placed in the middle. But the, bre- the breads and the levona were mutually exclusive. There was no levona inside the dough of the bread. Right. And they were not eaten together. The levona was burned separately after Shabbos, after the breads were switched. 
from one Shabbos to another. So I, I, I don't know if there is any... I, I, there, there must be some connection why the, the, the Libuna and the bread are on the same shulchan, but I, I don't know what it is. I, I'm yeah, I'm not sure. That. That, that's probably a whole other <laughs> subject of study that you could do uh, to find out why, why that was there. I mean, we know the frankincense is very aromatic and... and you know, it's, uh, but it's actually quite interesting. I, I try to find it for my workshop, and it, I thought it would be enormously difficult to find it. The, bot- the botanical name for frankincense is called Boswellia. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a herb, and I thought it would be very difficult to find, but actually it was quite easy because they, they, they use them in health stores. So yes. It be very good for the digestive system. Right, so exactly. So it's actually quite easy to find. Right, so that maybe, well, who knows what the, the reason is, but I'm sure it ties in. Uh, Tyson somehow or or not, and we just do it because that's that's fine, and that's what we were that's told. We believe a hundred percent. If you had to take a a, a guess with all the mafarsh and whatnot, what shape would you think is? Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot. Might be the most um, authentic, if you will, or or correct shape of the of the bread from both a historical perspective, Torah perspective, and uh, a baking perspective. Okay, so uh, let's start off with the scientific evidence that we have. The only scientific evidence we have of the bread is that it was in the shape of a U, mm-hmm. and that is from the coins of Matitya Antigonos that right. it was U-shaped. Um, but that doesn't dis- dispel uh, Rabbi Hanina's girsa. It could very well be that the bread in the, ba- the first Beit HaMikdash was not the same shape as it used in the second Beit HaMikdash. could very well be that in mm. Moshe Rabbeinu's Mishkan and the be- first Beit HaMikdash, it was in the shape, the shape of a Teva Putza, and in the second Beit HaMikdash, it was in a, in a, in a Sfinar Roketet shape. That could very well be. And because there's no halacha lemaaseh on the machlokes, right. so we don't really know the answer to that question. We have to wait for the Mashiach to come. Right, exactly. But if you would ask me personally what I think the correct shape to be, um, I would say that the machloket between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Hanina in the Gemara is not just a simple uh, argument over shape and ge- geometry. I think it's a much deeper issue than just simple geometry and how it fit, how it fitted on the shulchan. Mm-hmm. I think if you look in a little bit uh, on the kabbalistic aspect of the shapes of the bread, they resemble different letters in the Hebrew alphabet. If you look at the teva putza, it looks very similar to the letter nun, and if you look at the svinar roketet, it looks very similar to the letter kaf. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And these all have their own kabbalistic uh, symbolisms. For example, the the letter kaf is a very a prominent symbol of uh, Shefa and Parnasa. Mm-hmm. And we know that uh, the Lechem Apanim was the symbol for Hashem's bracha for Parnasa. It was on the northern side of the Mishkan. It says, Misha Rotzel Ashir Yatspin, because the Shulchan of the Lechem Apanim was on the north side of the, the Mishka, of the, of the Hechal. So the, the symbolism of the Lechem Apanim was a bracha for Parnasa. And if, the, if you look at the Kaf shape, the Kaf, has a lot of kabbal- kabbalistic symbolism for Parnassah and Shefa. For example, the the kaf which is in the middle of a word, or the kaf which is at the end of the word with a straight uh, uh, a straight line at the at, on the one end. Right. That is like letting down the Shefa and allowing it to filter down to to the person. There's a whole lot of kabbalistic. So I think the the, the machloket between Rabbi Hanin and Rabbi Yochanan is much deeper than simply what the geomet- geometrical shape. I think it has a much deeper symbolism for our for our own Shefa and Paranasai in the world. That makes a lot of sense. This is a totally fascinating topic that um, 
uh, gives us insight into the learning and and uh, the Torah and and um, what actually went on and 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 to me it's it's uh, I mean it's it's historical it's uh, archaeological it's uh, it's Torah it's everything and it also is something like you said we need to study now because we want to know what to do when the next base of Mikdash comes I I liken it and one of the things that, that I thought of and compared it to is uh, the uh, the relatively recent. Uh, renewal of the topic of Tehillat and uh, right. the finding of things, and I'm and very close with that. My friends are the ones who are uh, head of the institute for um, Tehillat, and it, it conjured up the same thoughts that these are things that we have maybe lost in some form or fashion for thousands of years, but yet now with insight, with science, with experts like yourself, we were able to look at this and say, okay, let's see how we're going to practically do this because we're going to need to do it, and we we. You know, we have to be ready, and and that's just such an important concept. Uh, I I imagine that you have a lot of different groups that come from all over the world to uh, to see this. I I also imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, that you'll have Jewish groups and non-Jewish groups who come to see this. They must be amazed uh, by this whole process. They must have a feeling, not just that they're doing something, but the connection to 2,000 years ago. Correct. So um, when you visit the Mahon HaMikdash, for example... Um, in Jerusalem, it's an amazing place. They've done sterling work, what, they, what they've reconstructed there. But, but basically what it is, it's a museum. Mm-hmm. You're visiting a museum and you're looking at things in glass cases right. and you're listening to explanations. It's not alive. But when you come to a workshop like this, for example, it's bringing the avodah to life. You're actually doing it yourself and you actually see how the bread goes on the table. You don't just see a, a, mo- a model of a reconstruction of the shulchan. You actually take the bread and you slide it on the table. There was a, it says, Lechem Panim Lefanai Tamid. There had to be bread on the table constantly. It had to be 24 over 7. That means that when the Mishmeret of the Kohanim replaced it on Shabbos, they had to do it in such a way that the bread was removed and replaced simultaneously. So the outgoing Mishmeret would slide the bread off the Shulchan, while the incoming a mishmeret would slide it on to have that lefanai uh, tamid. So the only when you actually rebuild a model yourself and you play around with it with your hands and you do all kinds of exercises with it, do you actually get a true understanding of what it's all about. Right, and that is and that that's is what we've been trying to do. Uh, how would people get in touch with you to uh, make this? Uh, make the workshop part of their visit to Israel, and and uh, if they're visiting, or even people in Israel who, you know, aren't. Uh, aren't used to doing this. Okay, so it's very simple. You just go to the internet and you search either in Google or in YouTube. Search for Breads of the Beis Amigdash. Okay. And our link will come up in the first two links. There's a nice little video clip there. You can get a more visual idea of what we do. Uh, we give these workshops year-round. Uh, we have uh, different workshops for kids, we do them for bar mitzvahs, but mitzvahs, depending on the age group and the, the level, we, we adapt the workshop to the level of the group. So we have things for kids, for families, for adults, for pensioners, <laughs> for Talmidei Chachamim. We do them all over the country in yeshivas and ulpanas. So it's a, it's a really adaptable workshop. Um, it's amazing because when you think you know everything and you give the kids or the, the group a, a, an exercise to do to try to try take a a foam rubber shaped lechem apanim and try it folded and see how they can fit it on the shulchan and get it into the space. Right. They come up with all kinds of interesting folds that you would never even have thought of. Right. 
it's, it's a very interesting exercise. Yeah, and, and uh, when you when people go to that uh, to the sites, they'll see pictures of uh, of the groups you and the groups making the breads, and you see how large they are. These are not small right. little loaves of bread that you're going to get in the store in a little plastic bag. So it's it, it's a These whole are different. Humongous breads, they're enormous. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, Les, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. This has been a fascinating topic. You, I think you, you indicated somewhere that you're writing a book about this or a safer. To, to, is that in the works? Yes, uh, hopefully it'll be published this year. We hope oh. uh, by yes. the end of the year to have it published. I, I haven't decided yet on the topic, but it's something to do with the history of Jewish bread. Excellent. Please. It'll be out by the end of the year. Beautiful. Please let us know about that. And uh, I thank you once again. Uh, again, Chag Sameach on the uh, Yom Ha'atzmut, on the 70th uh, birthday of the modern state of Israel, and you are connecting to the uh, 2000-something uh, birthday of uh, of the traditional, uh, if you will, Beit HaMikdash and state of Israel. And we hope that, uh, I guess, there'll be a combination of that in, in the near future. There's a very interesting uh, nevoah from Yecheskel when the first, the second Beit Hamikdash was destroyed. Sorry, the first Beit Hamikdash mm-hmm. was destroyed. Am Yisrael was going out into Galut, and Hashem said to Yecheskel in the nevoah, He said, "Okay, now is the time to start teaching them the the Beit Hamikdash how to do all the different uh, kelim, etc." So Yecheskel said, "Akadosh Baruch Hu, now is the time when the Beit Hamikdash has just been destroyed. Everyone's broken." So Akadosh Baruch Hu said, "Yes, Dafka, now is the time because your limud and uh, the the." The study that you make of the Beit Hamikdash is, is, is if you have rebuilt it, and that is what we're trying to duplicate by the schut of our limud, that will have some minor part in the rebuilding of the, the third Beit Hamikdash. Beautiful, beautiful way to end this. Thank you so much again, and hatslacha uh, to you in the future. Amen. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. Take care. Les Les Seidel. CEO of the Seidel Artisan Baking Institute in Israel. Fascinating, fascinating topic. Uh, And I thank him for joining us uh, this morning on the show. Uh, You can Google, as he had said, Bread to the Beit HaMikdash, and you'll find uh, his website and and the information on uh, how to get there and and participate in the workshops. Uh, We'll end off a little something here uh, from Kozimra and... uh, Thanks again for joining us here on JM Sunday. Oh, oh, oh.